Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. As we studied the letter to Thyatira, we saw that Jesus had both commendation and some very stern condemnation for that church steeped in idolatry. As we now look at the Church of Sardis, what will the Lord have to say to these believers? And what can we learn from this letter? Let's open to Revelation chapter 3 and join Pastor Phil now for our study. In verse 1, Jesus said to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus introduces himself here as one who possesses the seven spirits and the seven stars. Look. There is only one Holy Spirit. We know that. But seven is the number of what? Completeness or fullness. What this church needed, this dead church, they needed an infusion of the fullness of the Holy Spirit into their fellowship. That's the idea. Remember how Jesus, the title he chooses to call himself by, sets the tone or the theme of the entire letter. This was a dead church. Jesus calls himself by a title where he says, I'm the one who holds the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And this church definitely needed an infusion of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, who is life. In fact, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. The Greek word is pneuma. Both of those words could be translated spirit. Both of them could be translated breath. We think of pneuma as breath. Um, someone has pneumonia, uh, trouble with breathing, and so on. It says of, of Adam that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of God, and Adam became a living soul. The idea here is that there is life only in the Spirit of God. This church needed an infusion of that life. Warren Worsby Bible commentator and once pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, said all of the church's man-made programs can never bring life any more than a circus can resurrect a corpse. The church was born when the Spirit of God descended on the day of Pentecost, and its life comes from the Spirit. A.W. Tozer, if you've ever read any of Tozer, you know he's a, he was a guy that didn't pull any punches, always penetrating, sometimes No doubt he offended somebody, spoke the truth. And I like what Tozer said along these lines. He said, if you were to take the Holy Spirit out of the work of the early church, we're talking the first century church, 90% of what they were doing would have come to a halt. If you were to take the Holy Spirit out of the work of the church today, 10% of what is being done would come to a stop. The church has moved away from a reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work. I have a pastor friend who told me that a church in his area, Christian church, borrowed $150,000, didn't have it in the bank, had to borrow it, listen, to pay a secular consulting company to tell them how to make their church grow. $150,000 borrowed to give to a secular consulting company 
to tell them how to make their church grow. And basically, I'll paraphrase the advice they were given. Here's what this 150 grand bought them. They were told basically to make their church so hip, relevant, positive, non-confrontational, and seeker-friendly that the world would feel right at home. Look, the church in Sardis had become so much like the world that they could no longer confront the world. As someone has said, it's okay for a ship to be in the sea, but look out when the sea gets into the ship. And it's okay for a church to be in the world, but look out when the world gets into the church. And that really is what spiritual deadness is all about. It's where a church becomes so much like the world trying to reach the world that it gets flooded with worldly people who feel right at home until they take that church over and push all the spiritual life out. And when that happens, the church has to use man-made gimmicks and programs to build the church because the power of the Holy Spirit is no longer there. Again, I like what Tozer said. He said, it is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with him. For they must be wooed to meetings with the stick of striped candy in the form of religious movies, games, and refreshments, end quote. Well, Jesus also said that he held the seven stars in his hand. This comes out of Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, and is most likely referring to the pastors of these churches. You know, sometimes it's the pastor's fault that a church is dying. Many pastors no longer have confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit working through the teaching of the Word to reach people and build the church. They don't have any confidence anymore in the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God. This was typified in what one of the leaders of one of the largest denominations had to say in addressing 40,000 delegates at a national convention some time ago. He said that their purpose for gathering was to, and I'm quoting him now, listen, to devise business methods by which the Holy Spirit of God could be regulated and made efficient. Now, folks, I have a hard time believing that a man who is truly born again could make such a statement. It's the blind leading the blind today in churches. And that's the problem. Well, again, verse 1, Jesus said to the angel or to the pastor, of the church in Sardis, write, These things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he said, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, as harsh as the letter to Thyatira was that we studied last week, it was at least, there was at least, I should say, a few things that Jesus commended them for. He had a few things that he was able to commend them for. He has nothing good to say about Sardis. He simply jumps right into the accusation. Remember the, the, the order that each of these letters follows? There's a commendation followed by an accusation, followed by an exhortation, followed by a promise, and so on. Here, there's a big blank spot where there should be a commendation. And Jesus goes right into the accusation. His rebuke of this church is threefold. First of all, they were placing all their worth on their reputation. He said, I know your works. 
and that you have a name. The word there uh, for name in the Greek could be translated reputation. I know your works, that you have a name, a reputation, that you are alive, but you are dead. You know, the Protestant Reformation was a dynamic time. It was a time where brave men took a stand for truth, and many of them paid the ultimate price for their faith. But soon, Protestantism became an empty shell, a dead movement. Oh, yes, there were certainly many men and women in Protestantism who loved the Lord, who were born of and filled with the Holy Spirit. But the movement in general had become a dead movement. And if you don't think Protestantism is dead, look at Europe. Do you realize that every year hundreds of Christian churches in Europe close and are sold to Muslims who turn them into mosques? We have a good friend who lives in Norway. She lived here in the States for years and moved back to Norway about three years ago. She's not a Christian. I think she thinks she is. But she was saying how that all the churches in Norway are being sold to Muslims. And my mother, who is a Christian, when she expressed horror at that, this lady said, well, what's the big deal? Nobody's going to them anyways. But Jesus in verse 1 says, I know your works, that you have a name. The word name there is a translation of the Greek word anima, the word we get our word denomination from. Let me say this. What a grand tradition those denominational churches have that can link their beginnings to the Protestant Reformation. And the people in those denominations are very proud of their name. And they talk constantly of the past glory of their heritage. And Jesus is kind of picking up on this and saying to them, Look, I know your works. Those things that have defined you. Those things of your history. uh, Your accomplishments. I know the things that gave you that name you're so proud of in the first place. The problem is you're living in the past. You're living in the past. There's a lot of churches who are living in the past. They can't move past the 16th century. They're still singing songs that were birthed in the 16th century. Is that wrong? No, of course not. But I think God wants to do a new thing in every generation. I love those old hymns. But don't you think the Spirit of God wants to give a new song to this generation of believers? Of course He does. Nothing wrong with the old hymns. They were awesome. And I still love singing them. But, you know, God is doing something new or wants to. But it's easy to rest on your laurels. It's easy to point with pride to men like Luther and say, we are Lutherans. Or to Calvin and say, we are Calvinists. Or to Wesley and say, we are Methodists. Jesus said, look, I know your works and that you have a name. And you think you're alive, but you're really dead. Today, most traditional mainline Protestant churches, like the Lutherans, Presbyterians, Wesleyans, Methodists, and Congregationalists, are championing everything from homosexuality to abortion rights to environmental issues. And yet many of them, if not most of them, no longer believe in the inerrancy of Scripture or the power of the Holy Spirit or that Jesus is really the only way to heaven. They have a name, and from the outside, they seem alive. I mean, they're always building, you know, adding on to their churches. And people are coming, especially on Sunday mornings, but really, not many are coming midweek unless, of course, the meeting is built around food and socializing. I don't even know if many of them have Bible studies during the week. Prayer meetings are practically non-existent in many of these churches. And really, there is no life in the Spirit at all. My wife was asked to speak at one of these denominational churches in the area. 
I think it was a women's luncheon. And um, she said, well, what do you guys typically, you know, what do your speakers typically talk about? Oh, well, one came in and told us how to organize our closets. Uh, another one came in and told us how to do this or that or make some craft. And she said, well, look, I can only go if I could talk about Jesus. Oh, really? Well, we're not sure about that. Let me check with somebody. <laughs> Got back to her and said, well, that'll be okay. But just, you know, don't, don't be real specific. Be real specific. This is a church, denominational church. I won't tell you which one. You know, there are many churches that are churches in name only. You have a name, Jesus said, a reputation, but you're dead. A sure sign of death is when a church worships its past. You know, when they say things like, uh, you know, no new wine for us. We've always done it this way. You know, they're content to live in the past and remember the good old days. And a lot of Christians are drawn to churches because of their name or their history instead of what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through them in the present. So, first of all, they were placing all their worth on their reputation. Number two, the second rebuke Jesus gives to them is that even the things that were good were about to die. He said in verse 2, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. You know, one of the tragedies to me is that the very issues the Reformation was built on The very things that were fought for, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, all these wonderful pillars upon which the Reformation was built, they're dying. Some of them are gone in many Protestant churches. No more sola fide, faith alone, sola scriptura, only the scriptures is what we need. I mean, it's in fact, in 1994, something very important happened. It was so important that Dave Hunt, it caused him to write his book, A Woman Rides the Beast. He called the most significant event in church history in 500 years. That's where Protestants and Catholics, Evangelicals, came together and signed ECT. Evangelicals and Catholics together in the third millennium. Basically, this was a document that said, we are really all one family in Christ, Protestants should stop trying to evangelize Roman Catholics. They're already our brothers and sisters, folks. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I was not saved. Thank goodness somebody witnessed to me. And I think that there's probably some of you here who could say amen to that, right? I mean, not to mention, Protestants were not supposed to be evangelizing Roman Catholics anymore after ECT. But the Catholic Church has stepped up its evangelization of Protestants. They call it Evangelization 2000. They're trying to bring all the separated brethren back into the Mother Church. They make no bones about it. But many, and the, the document basically, I'll paraphrase it, basically said that the Reformation was a mistake. It, it went way too far. We're all one in Christ. That is exactly the third thing that Jesus rebukes this church for. The Reformation went too far. In verse 2, Jesus said, I have not found your works perfect before God. The word perfect there is a Greek word that means incomplete. Their works had not gone far enough. The Protestant Reformation was was needed. It was important. But it didn't go far enough to purge from the church all the Babylonian false doctrine that had been brought into the church through Rome. 
I mean, and I don't want to get down on Christmas and Easter. I love to celebrate them too. But you realize, as we have already said, much of those, the things we celebrate during those holidays were taken right out of Babylonian paganism. Christmas was the feast of, of, uh, of Saturnalia, which took place at the time of the winter solstice. And, of course, the hours of sunlight became less and less until it was set around December 21st, the sun god died. They would light a Yule log to help the sun god make it through those days. And then around the 25th, they celebrated the resurrection of the sun god or the rebirth of the sun god. And so evergreens were decorated, you know, and you had all kinds of mistletoe and all kinds of trappings that we use today to celebrate Christmas. It all goes back to Babylonianism. Easter of his other was a holiday to Eshtarte. We say Easter it comes right from that word. She was a fertility goddess. They used to celebrate her feast with colored eggs, which were a symbol of fertility, and rabbits because they tend to reproduce quite uh, prolifically. And so this was a feast that was to the pagan. And when uh, Constantine supposedly had his conversion experience, he became really the first um, Roman emperor that wanted to, was a Christian, and uh, although we're not sure he really converted, but he tried to blend Christianity and paganism. You couldn't take away these feasts from these pagans. That's all they had. They didn't have a you know five-day work week and a couple days off. They worked nonstop. The only thing they had to look forward to were their f- festivals and things. So you can't take it away, but you know you want to kind of Christianize the empire, so you go ahead and you try to Merged the two, and so Saturnalia became Christmas, the birth of Christ. Easter, Eshtart became the celebration of the resurrection, but uh, you had things like Lent. Lent comes right out of Babylonianism. Now, I'm not saying that we can't celebrate Christmas because we know we don't look at it as a pagan holiday. We we celebrate the birth of Christ and resurrection in the spring. And, of course, if you want to set aside some days to fast and pray and draw close to God. I have no problem with that. The, th- the thing about it is, though, that that uh, the Protestant Reformation did not go far enough. Jesus said, uh, I've seen your works, but they're really incomplete. You haven't gone far enough in separating yourself from the paganism that has taken hold in the church. In verse 3, he begins the exhortation. He said, remember, therefore... How you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. The Greek is literally keep on remembering. Jesus is saying, look, you have a noble beginning. Keep reminding yourself of how you got your name in the first place. Look, he's saying connect with your past, but don't live in the past. We should remember the past. That's good. Remember how that God gave to Israel many feasts that were memorial in nature. They were designed to remind Israel of all that God had done in the past. The Passover was a a typical of that. They were to remember the past, but they weren't to live in the past because God wants to work in every generation. I'll tell you what, if Luther was alive today, I think he'd be nailing his reforms to the doors of many of the churches that bear his name. And likewise with with men like Calvin and Wesley, I mean, I think they'd be standing out in front of the churches that trace their beginnings to their ministries, and they'd be shouting, repent. In fact, Jesus tells these people there in Sardis to repent. Who's he talking to? Well, he's not talking to the faithful remnant. They didn't really have any reason to repent. He's talking to the majority of the church, which was dead in trespasses and sins. This church didn't need revival. It needed regeneration. 
This was not just a backslidden church. This was a dead church. As I said earlier, what happens is when you lower your guard, maybe you have good motives. Maybe you're trying your best to reach the world. And in some people's mind, that means becoming like the world. But you become so like the world to reach the world, the church loses the power of of being different. And what happens is you make it so comfortable for people in the world, they flood in, take over, push out those that are really spirit-filled, or they leave. And now you have a church populated by religious unbelievers. You say, oh, come on, does that happen a lot? Folks, look around. It's everywhere you look. It's everywhere you look in our society. You have churches that are run by unbelievers. I told you, I've known a couple of men. One stood up at our uh, pastor's conference years ago, Calvary Pastor's Conference, and said, for 14 years, I I was a Methodist pastor, and then I got saved. We have a gentleman that comes to our church. For many years, he was a Presbyterian elder, and then he got saved. You have churches all over the place that are full of spiritually dead people. Now, the good news is that spiritually dead people can repent and get saved. We were at one time dead in trespasses and sins. But somebody shared the gospel with us, and we received it, and we were born again. The problem, though, if you are going to a church and you are a religious unbeliever, the problem is you think you're right with God. In that situation, you have just enough self-righteousness to inoculate you to true righteousness, which can only come through Christ. I'm going to church. I'm involved in ministry. Don't let any trip on me. I know God. It's very difficult to reach somebody for Christ. I mean, give me an out-and-out pagan any day. I would rather have a beer-drinking, motorcycle-riding, fist-fighting pagan any day to witness to than some kind of of a lukewarm religious pew-warmer. Because they nod, you know, with that smile on their face, and they're not getting any of it. I know that. (laughs) Give me a guy that gets upset, wants to strangle me, and at least I know I'm getting through to him. (laughs) So Jesus is talking to these dead corpses, spiritually speaking, saying, look, repent, get some life in you. And notice the Lord doesn't say, remember what you have received or what you have heard. Look, the Protestant church knows what they have received and heard. Good heavens, they have codified it in creeds and confessions. They have carved it in stone. The problem with a good hunk of the Protestant church is not liberalism. They're orthodox. The problem is dead orthodoxy. Truth without life. Oh, they're right. Doctrinally speaking, they're just dead right. We have a couple coming to our church, and I'm not going to name them, but I don't want to embarrass them, but they had spent many years in a Lutheran church in the area. One day handed me a few CDs of, of the pastor of that church and asked me to kind of listen to his sermons and just kind of see what I thought. And I listened to them. And as I was listening to this gentleman teach, I, he sounded very sincere. I, you know, he did sound like a man who was trying to really, you know, get across spiritual truth. The problem is, it, it was nothing wrong in what he was saying. There was just no power behind it. There was just no power behind it. It was dead truth. And if you've ever heard dead truth, you, you know what I'm talking about. Now, that's not every Lutheran pastor. I mean, I got a hold of a... Of a 
video of a Lutheran pastor down in Texas who was very active in the pro-life movement. He gave one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard, so powerful I actually played it for our church on Sunday morning. I mean, it's not, I'm not talking about every Lutheran pastor, every method. I've seen some Methodist pastors who are on fire for the Lord, Lutheran pastors, um, uh, and others. I'm just talking, though, in general. Jesus, look, he doesn't say here, remember what, but remember how you have received and heard. Look, the church isn't lacking for information. The church is lacking in life and power. Too many believers and leaders in the church today have their degrees, all the little letters after their names. They have all their little theological ducks in a row, but there is no life or passion or reality in what they know. Jesus is essentially asking this church, how did you receive? Remember how you received. Did you receive because of your great education? You know what? I am not against education. Please believe me. I am not against seminaries and Bible college. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day.